You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toll. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all of mankind. 
by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always to so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you, for you are our glory and our joy? Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And when we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the Gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as that has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted through your faith. For now we live, and if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, that your sanctification, that you have stained from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control their own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of, just, of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but you disregard God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you have yourselves been taught by God to love one another. For that in, is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are a child of the light and a child of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet and the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays any evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Keep all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to the church. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So imagine for just a second, weeks or months earlier, from the reading of this letter, you are in Thessalonica. Maybe you're a Jew. Maybe you're a Gentile or a Greek. And you either stumble into the synagogue that morning or you, through some sort of teaching in the streets, hear this phrase, the Gospel. And you hear of this good news. Now, to you and I, the Gospel is pretty cut and clear and, 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 and precise. Oh, that has something to do with Jesus. But see, the Gospel in this time would have probably perked their ears more so to the Roman government. Because Caesar was the good news. Caesar is king. 
And so a proclamation of the Gospel, the good news, would have been a person in the military or in the government coming to the local town to say, hey, here is the Gospel. Here is the good news that has come to you. We've lowered your taxes. We've raised your taxes. And when you, we raise your taxes, something good's going to come from that. They'll, they'll say this and then they'll somehow give you some good news, supposedly. And you're stumbling into the synagogue or you're hearing it on the street and you go, good news, okay, cool. And then you hear Yeshua or you hear Jesus. Somehow. You hear this name and you go, Gospel, Jesus, what is this? And then all of a sudden you see a guy who probably has a limp, who's probably not the easiest on the eyes. He looks like he's been rode hard and put up wet, so to speak. He's had a hard life. And he's communicating to a whole sea of people, likely either in a synagogue or on the, uh, on the streets. And he's doing so with passion. And, and he truly believes the words that are coming out of his mouth. And you start to see these highly intellectual people around him go, okay, this is making sense. And he's, what he's doing is he's unpacking the Old Testament. And he's kind of making an argument that they have missed something. See, what they were expecting was a Messiah to look like this, and what they, Paul is trying to communicate, this guy who probably looks broken, looks like he's had better days, is saying, no, 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 you've missed the Messiah because you missed Jesus. You were looking for someone else, but what you should have been looking for was this. Let me prove it to you. And he goes through the Old Testament and begins to convey to them why they missed Jesus. And you're converted. You believe in that moment. Maybe you were a Jew in synagogue and he made sense of all of the prophetic claims throughout the Old Testament. And you go, okay, I did miss the Messiah. Jesus is that person. I've heard about this. And now it's all making sense. And in that moment, you repent and believe. Or you're the person on the street who maybe wasn't as religious as those around you and Somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God convicts your heart and you believe and you repent. And so Paul and others launch the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to get into more details of how that happened next week, but imagine for a second you're the person who had just given your life to Jesus weeks or maybe months earlier. And all of a sudden this letter, 1 Thessalonians, comes to you And someone in your church, because you're gathering as the body, stands up and says, hey, I got a a letter I need to read. Paul wrote us a letter. And immediately your heart is filled with joy because you're like, Paul's the one who led me to Christ. Like, you're taking me kind of back to a moment and I've been struggling, although there's been great things happening in our city, I need this moment. And so they get up and they read this letter. And for most of the letter, you're going, heck yeah, we're doing a good job. That's right. But then he's like, hey, but keep going. And you're like, keep going, man. I think we're doing pretty well. And then he hits it again. He goes, you are doing pretty well. And then Paul says, no, 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 but you need to do more. You need to go harder, so to speak. And if you're that person, what do you take away from this letter? What does it mean to be the church, according to Paul, writing to you in Thessalonica? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to launch into a series 
called Rethinking the Church. And we're going to walk through the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, and then 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to kind of unpack the teachings of Paul to what most would say was the healthiest New Testament church. This wasn't Corinth. This wasn't a church that had all sorts of struggles from within, and they didn't know how to even like gather well. And Paul had to write them a letter and kind of smack them around and say, you people don't even know how to communicate well with each other. Now this is Thessalonica. These are people who their faith like echoed throughout the region. So like when they received the Gospel with power and with the Holy Spirit, it went out. It didn't stay just within their little gatherings. It didn't just stay in their little family units. No. It impacted the entire city around them. And you get a letter. And Paul says, here's all the things you got to do. Here's some theological concepts you need to get. Why are we doing this? Why, why are we going to walk through this letter and, and rethink the church? I think it's important that, that you and I understand the history of the church. I think it's important, number, number one, that we open God's Word and we unpack what He has. Because this letter was written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, but it was inspired by the Lord and it was, can be applied to us. And so we're beginning this series to challenge our thoughts, to push our limits, and Lord willing, grow our faith and grow the community of faith around us. But it's important that each of us hear the entire message of what Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, intends to say. That's why I wanted to read the entire thing in, in one sitting. Because I think we can get so wrapped up into kind of piecing through verses and let's just be honest, you're not going to be here every single week for 20 weeks or whatever it is. You can, that's a time to smile, right? You're looking at me like I just, you know, wow, he said it. You're not going to be. There's a chance that I'm not going to be. And we'll have a guest speaker. It just, it's just how life works. But I think what's important is that we understand that Jesus didn't just write this letter through Paul intending for us to just only look at kind of the verse, and go, oh, this, this is my life verse. This one's good right here. I like this one. No, no, no. It fits in the whole narrative. It, it's one letter. And so we don't just go through it going, man, I really like 1-4 or 2-10 or 3-6. Those things are fine to do, but context matters. And I think it's important that we understand that this letter written to a healthy church still has a measure of, boy, won't you get it right? Like, that's how Paul kind of writes. And I think it's important that as we dive into this text over the next several weeks and months, that you and I come in with a heart that's open and receptive. I was going across the, the Twitter sphere yesterday, which is a dangerous thing to do. And a, a famous pastor that I follow said this, a guy named Dr. Tony Evans. He says, I, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. And he says this, but you don't have to go home to be married. You but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. Our culture in the West has kind of created a society 
of casual Christianity, and I think, it's re- I think it's time for us to rethink it. I think it's time for you and I to, to really have a heart-to-heart, and I think ultimately for you to have a heart-to-heart, a face-to-face with Jesus, and really rethink what it means to live out your faith as he has called you to be the church. See, we, we choose sermon series based on topics, generally speaking, in the West that will inspire and engage us for the right now. Instead of opening the counsel of God's Word and walking in the truth that we say we believe, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching or for reproof or correction and for training in righteousness. See, what we do is we go, man, what can we uh, teach our people today that will really just kind of hit home? It'll be really good. Instead of just kind of coming to this point of, of realization of going, it's all good. And I don't know what each of you are walking through. Matter of fact, there's literally no way for me to know what each and every one of you carries in your day. So I can sit around and I can have prayer meetings as a pastor, and I'm like, man, I really need to talk about relationships because i got a lot of folks who are struggling in relationships. I need to talk about money. I need to talk about how, how you deal with difficult people. Or I need to talk about deep theological concepts. And, and, and I don't think, please don't hear this wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong with a topical sermon series. I've done them. I will continue to do them. But here's what they do. They allow me and other pastors to avoid stuff we don't want to talk about. And they allow you to do the same thing. See, when I open up Thessalonians, I say, hey, we're going to walk through it. When I come across a verse that talks about dead people rising from the grave and floating in you know, the air, I have to talk about this. What does this mean? And, and some are coming before others and others before some. What, what does this look like? When, when I have to talk about Paul being held back by Satan. I have to kind of discuss, okay, what does this mean for us today? Are we held back by Satan in our life? You know, God forbid in church we say the word Satan. I mean, how many pastors today don't even, you can listen to sermon after sermon after sermon and yet they never say his name. The darkness. The evil one. He has no power. Satan is nobody. Jesus is king. I'm not afraid to say his name. But somewhere in our Western culture, we've come to this place of what I want to do is I want to put together the best gift basket possible on a Sunday morning so that it's appealing to your eyes. Now, there's truth in there. I'm not saying that someone who who maybe didn't say Satan's name doesn't give truth. There's truth. I've heard some amazing sermons from somebody who never even said the name Satan in the sermon, and I got it. I kid it. I'm not saying they can't do that. What I'm saying is we spend so much time on gift-wrapping this basket so that you and I can swallow kind of the difficult parts of it. And I think in the time that we spend in gift-wrapping this pretty basket, we forget that sometimes you and I need to get slapped across the face. Paul has a healthy church right here in Thessalonica that's doing really well. Like they're winning people around them to Christ. Their church is growing and flourishing in an area that probably it shouldn't be because paganism is huge still. 
Yes, they didn't have all of the same like um, sexual gods that Corinth was dealing with, but they still had some pretty strong little G gods that had some strongholds through the power of Satan in people's lives. But yet, because they preached the gospel and they lived the gospel, people were coming to faith in Christ. And Paul says, hey, you're doing a great job. Do better. And I, I'm blown away by his constant repetition of that. I mean, when you go through this letter, it isn't, I mean, it's a very short thing. I just read it in like 12 minutes. And yet like five or six times, hey, you're doing good, but keep doing. Hey, you're doing good, do better. And I look at us as a Western church and I go, do we even question how well we're doing? Do we even question what we exist for? Because so often we let our children choose the church that we'd attend because they have friends that go to this place. Rather than asking the question of, hey, is this where God wants me to go? And I guess I should say it even differently. Is this where God wants me to be active? Because there ain't one place in Scripture where God's going to say, hey, you should just go to a church. He tells us to be the church. He tells us to to be engaged and active. And I know there's a lot of things that make this complicated because for many of us, the church is larger than just what's in the room because we have solid Christian friends that go to a church down the road or go to a church in a different state or go to a church anywhere else. And we are family with them in the big C universal church way. And I, I get that. But we've got to be able to wrestle with kind of some original language. When they use the word ecclesia in the New Testament to describe the church, 90-like percent of the time, he's not talking about universal church. He's not talking about, you know, Ingleside and Northway and Stone Edge and Radiant and Rock Springs and Piedmont and all the other Beulah and and all these other churches. He's not necessarily saying, hey, you, in that way. He's saying, you, wherever you find your local body, that's the ecclesia. That's the church to you. That doesn't mean you can't have friends or family outside of that, but we got to start going, okay, as the body of Christ, meaning as the people of Piedmont, what do we exist for? Why do we as the church of Christ come together on a weekly basis? And is it limited to a weekly basis? Is it limited to just a gathering on a Sunday morning? Why do we exist? Because somewhere, some way, the Western church has been making a shift and we continue to make this shift as some churches are really pumping this online thing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with online church necessarily. But I'm also saying, all right, I go online, I can listen to a famous, popular pastor who's probably going to rock the sermon. It's probably going to be way better than mine. Amen, right? Appreciate that. There's a decent chance that same sermon isn't going to knock you over, over the head. I've listened to a lot of really good ones now. Most of them, I don't leave going, I'm a terrible human being, right? There's there's a lot of them that, you know, they end with this up, 
up, up, you know, kind of uptone, and, and I think that's fine, I think it's good, but then who do I get spurred on by? What happens when some of my nearer family is going through an illness? Who, who do I have to pray for me? Who do I have to build me up? What happens when I'm living in sin? What, what person comes around me and says, hey, Chris, you're living in sin? What, what happens when anything else in life happens besides me just going through it and kind of muddling through it and trying to do it on my own in an online world? I'm not saying online is wrong. We have an online type platform as well because when people miss, we want them to still stay glued in and understand what's going on. We have to rethink. We have to ask the question. If you can't ask the question, you won't know the answer. You won't know what you stand for. The church may not know its identity at this exact moment in the Western church because we have so many different theories and understandings of what it is to be the church. Like I mentioned, we let our children sometimes choose where we go or we let our, our families go to church in one place and yet uh, our students are going to this place and our, our children are going to that thing and uh, they're at this location and oh, we're getting Bible studies from this and that and the other. And again, none of these things are necessarily wrong, but the question is, at what point do we know what everything's being taught and we're kind of coming underneath the body of Christ and we're going, okay, here is the formula for my family to grow in Christ. How, how does this work? How, how does the ecclesia happen in this way? And then we see how we function in life. The, the Western church on, on social media only appears slightly different than everyone else in the world, at best. And what I mean by that is when a political debate strikes up on Facebook, are the Christ followers very clearly Christ followers, or do their statements look just pretty much like everybody else's statements? When the athlete drops out of a competition, does the Christ followers' words edify the Lord, or does it look like everybody else's words? Whether you agree with it or not. When the virus discussion happens as it's going to every day in your life, do you look like a Christ follower? Or do you look any different from the other people in the world? Again, whether you're right, wrong, or your opinion is amazing or not. I don't... Never mind. <laughs> is your reaction to the latest meme online or in that text message to a friend really edifying and pointing people back to Jesus. What does it look like anybody else's text message feed? Along the way, somewhere, I think there's a place where the Western church has settled for a less than holy. And God has called us and empowered us to be holy. That's what he's called us for. Does that mean that I'm perfect? No. My wife can attest to that. And so can Chris Bailey. But what we're called to is to seek it. To follow after Jesus. 
So, if I were to approach you with this gospel, this good news on the street, and you were, you were to hear me teaching about this thing that would alter your future, if you were to receive this future-altering good news, would your life be any different six weeks later? Like, functionally, you've received this gospel, this good news. You go, I mean, I, this is the truth. I believe in it. I believe it's going to change my eternity forever. What's it do to your day-to-day life? And I think this is the question that we need to be looking at when, we, when we're talking about rethinking the church. Is that we have come to a place as Christ followers where we say we believe in a life-altering event. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes our life, our future, everything. It gives us purpose, meaning, answers to, to questions. It gives us a worldview that is concrete. Do our lives and our actions follow that belief? I was asked earlier this week by one of our former students, now college student, what, is it, what does it mean to, to be loved by God? And for me, that answer starts at a place of understanding of who God is. Because I can't receive the love of God until I recognize who God is. And I think for a moment, if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of the people of Thessalonica, we're coming to this place and we're going, okay, Paul's writing us a letter. We've been doing good. He's hitting us with some more things we need to do better. We need to ask the question, do we know who God is? Because when we know who God is, He will change our actions every single day. He will radically change our hearts and our minds over and over again by being renewed in who He is. Because when we know who He is, we know who we are, and we will believe and know that we are loved by God. I'm asking you to examine your heart over the next couple of weeks. I'm asking you to ask the question, what would it look like to rethink the church? Questions like, is the church a hospital for the sick? Are we a beacon of hope to the world? Is the church a place or a people? Does the church move into hard regions of our world and begin to till soil, or do we stay in safe, secluded places? Is the church a safe place for vulnerability? Meaning, when the body of Christ gathers, do we feel a sense of family? Do we feel a sense of vulnerability in this way that we can share, I am in the midst of this struggle? Or does it ever get past cool song, cool sermon? Is the church the family that you've longed to be a part of? Are you giving to the church? Or are you taking from the church? Are you actively making brothers and sisters in Christ around you better followers? These are many of the questions that Paul is going to have us answer as we rethink the church. What does it look like to be the church taking the lead from our brothers and sisters in the past of Thessalonica? 
how do we rethink the church today and our culture? So the next several weeks and months, I want you to be praying. I want you to be praying for me. I want you to be praying for our church. I want you to be praying for yourself. And ask the question, what does it look like to rethink church? Is church just a thing where we have cool programs for children, nursery students, and we just teach great Bible lessons and we have cool lights and, and all of that? Or, oh, that's just a tool for the greater purpose, or is there another purpose? What does it look like to be the church? If everything we knew existed the way it did today, if it all of a sudden maybe stopped, what would the church continue to look like? If electricity went out forever, is the way that we do church the right way? Like, we need to be asking questions in this idea of, are we doing the things that we're called to do, or are we just doing things that we think point to the things that we're called to do and to be? Are we loving each other well? Are we pointing people back to the gospel in all things that we do? Ask those questions. And over the next couple of weeks, several weeks, let's answer them together. God, we thank you for your word through the passage of Thessalonians. Lord, I pray that you will uh, move in our hearts, that you'll give us open and receptive ears, that you'll allow us to ask difficult questions of ourselves, of our friends, of our family, of our church, that we'll plug in and uh, we'll be attentive to your Spirit's work in our lives. It's in your Son's name I pray. Amen.